So we're not going to finish Romans today. That's next week, Lord willing. But I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20 in this chapter here. So Paul writes in Romans 16, verse 17, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So anyway, just um, real briefly looking at what we saw last week in the first 16 verses. uh, We began looking at this final chapter of the book of Romans And Romans 16, at first glance, when you look at it, it's like, what's the big deal? It's just a bunch of names. Paul is sending his greetings. And then he gives a benediction at the end. Why are we spending so much time in it? Well, I believe in this chapter, what you're seeing here is the heart of the Apostle Paul as he sends these personal greetings to these people who are very near and dear to him, people with whom he had worked, people with whom he had labored and labored hard with, people who were faithful servants in the church like Phoebe, people who are gifted instructors like Priscilla and Aquila, and then just a bunch of other people we've never heard of before who were just faithful, everyday Christians who, who came to church and who served the Lord with gladness and thanksgiving and gave of themselves to the work of the kingdom. And Paul takes time to greet these people. Now, he sends these greetings to people in Rome, even though he hasn't been there. We kind of talked about this, how these were, you know, Rome is the capital of the empire. So it's not surprising that people would travel throughout the empire and at some point or another might find their way into Rome. And many of these people had, you know, in the case of Priscilla and Aquila, they were from Rome, were expelled, and now they're back there. Uh, In the case of Phoebe, she's going there, uh, presumably with the letter, and others there that have, you know, Paul has had interaction with who are now at Rome. Uh, so he sends his greetings to them, and that's pretty much what we see here. And we looked at some of these people, like we looked at Phoebe, we looked at Priscilla and Aquila, um, and some other things too. But the main lesson to draw from these verses is that there are no small or insignificant people in the church. Okay? Just because we have pastors and elders and deacons and you know they are elected to these offices that the church has ordained and we you know we have all of these special services that we do to ordain and install these offices doesn't mean that the person who plays piano or the person who sweeps the floor or the person who you know makes sure that the you know downstairs are all set up when we have a fellowship meal that those things are unimportant and that the people in the church are unimportant there's there are no small or insignificant people in the church because each church each local iteration of the church is a group of people that God has providentially brought together for that time and for the purpose of expanding and growing the kingdom of God and we are all gifted We are all gifted by the same Spirit. We saw that earlier in Romans. We are all gifted by the same Spirit 
to serve and edify one another. So thus, we deprive the church and we deprive each other if we don't use those gifts. If those people who, are, who don't seem to be in a position of prominence, if they feel, well, I'm not, you know, I'm just a person who sits in the pew Sunday after Sunday, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to connect myself and involve myself with the church. Well, you deprive us and you deprive the church of your special gift that God has given to you. So it's always good to make sure that we recognize um, everybody in the church because ministry is not just for pastors or elders or deacons. We are each part of the body. And again, one of the things we see in this passage especially is the role of women. So that includes women serving in the church in various capacities as well. So now as we come into what we're going to look at this morning, verses 17 through 20, um, as Paul is closing his letter, so I think I made this joke with somebody before, but when I was in, growing up in Chicago, um, when I was in high school, uh, well, maybe a little older, no, high school, um, I dated this girl. She was Hispanic, and she had a large family. And there were always weddings in her family, or re- people. Re- there was always some cousin or something or other getting married. Now, if you've ever been to a Hispanic wedding, it's a long affair. And when you're trying to leave a Hispanic wedding, if you wanted to leave at three o'clock, you need to start planning to leave about noon. Okay, because as you're going, you're saying goodbye to people and then you start having a conversation and then you're there for 30 minutes or an hour and then you go to the next person as you're going out. So plan to leave early if you want to leave <laughs> later in the day. Well, I feel like that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he wants to sign off this letter and he's giving greetings and he's like, oh wait, one more thing. I've got some one final exhortation I want to give you here. In this, you know, before I sign off, okay, because we had gotten a question, uh, was emailed to me about, you know, we have, it looks like in verse 13 of chapter 15, what looks like an ending, right? A benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Spirit. And then Paul goes on. And then at the end of verse 17, or verse 20, we see, then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. That sounds like a closing too. And then he goes on. <laughs> and then we see the final, final closing at the, end of the, at the very end of the letter where he gives a little lengthier benediction. But, you know, so it's like he can't help himself. He wants to say goodbye and wants to sign off, but then he wants to say a few more things. It's like, so it's like P.S., P.P.S., P.P.P.S., <laughs> All right, goodbye. (laughs) So here we've got some final uh, exhortations this morning. And the warning that we see here is concerning what we we see here, divisive people, people who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine that has been received. And it's always sad to see the church torn apart from the inside by people in the inside who cause division, who are not content with the way things are and want to change things or want to teach certain things that are contrary to what the church ought to teach. And we see this. It's it's you see many letters in the New Testament that talk about it. So people who say it's like, oh, can't we just go back to when the church, you know, the New Testament church? And it's like it was always it was so pristine. It's like, no, it wasn't. Read Corinthians, read Galatians, read any of the epistles. There are always some problem in those churches 
that Paul had to address. Read the letters to the churches in Revelation that we've looked at. Five of them had some kind of rebuke. Only two of them Jesus didn't say anything bad about. And then there were two of them that Jesus didn't say anything good about. So if you want to say, well, you know, all oh, that first century church, it was so perfect. It's like, no, it wasn't. And no, neither are we. You know, so there's always some kind of division, some kind of people or group of people within. Now, thankfully, I haven't noticed that here. But it's, when I say in the church, I mean in the church in general, in, you know, um, you know, maybe other churches, but there's always some kind of people in the church that want to tear apart the church. And it's a sad reality no matter when or where we are. So then what we have here is sort of Paul's one last exhortation before he finally signs off on the letter. Now, the first thing we see here in verses 17 and 18 is this actual command to avoid divisive people. Now, while Paul begins the exhortation in verse 17, it's really verse 19, I think, that gives, that, that gives us the main point of this passage. So in verse 19, we see particularly the last half where he says, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Now, we're going to look at this verse a little later in more detail, but here the point is to be wise in the ways of good. Okay? And simple. Now, simple in this case, means innocent or naive in the ways of evil. So don't be experienced in the ways of evil. Be experienced or wise or skillful in the ways of doing good. And we'll, that thought is going to govern this passage. And one way to be wise in the ways of good and innocent in the ways of evil is to avoid divisive people. So going back now to verse 17 where Paul says, I urge you, brethren... Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. So there are two commands there. Paul says, note them and avoid them. And that word, you know, note and avoid those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the teaching or doctrine which you have learned from us, you know, people who have brought the gospel to them. Now, when he says these divisive people, these people who cause divisions, we're well beyond the point of what we looked at in Romans 14 and 15 about the non-essentials or the, what was the word? Come on, so you know it. Adi, 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 yeah. Ali, ali, auction, free, free, free. Adi, afra, right? <laughs> the non-essentials. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Okay? We shouldn't divide over those things either. That's what Paul says in Romans 14 and 15. Don't, you know, don't look down your nose at the brother who does something or don't judge the brother who does this or that or the other thing or doesn't do these things. But that's not what we're talking about here. When, when Paul says note and avoid divisive people, he's not talking about people who disagree over little things. He's talking about things that are, that are serious to the doctrine. He says those who cause division contrary to the doctrine you have received from us. In other words, contrary to the truth of the gospel. This, these are not the non-essentials. This would be stuff that's right on target about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about uh, the, the way of salvation, how to behave in the world, things like that. So he's telling us to note and avoid those kind of people who cause those kind of divisions in the church. Now, when Paul here says that we are to note and avoid divisive people, that word note 
it's kind of an interesting word. Uh, in Greek, it's the, it's the word skopeo, which we get the word scope. So you're supposed to scope them out. Scope out those people. You know, you're, when you get your little telescope or whatever. You know, you look and you find the people who are causing division. You note them. And then you say, okay, avoid that person. <laughs> okay, so you, you take note. That's a, you know, so if you've ever been to classes or synod, you know, whenever they don't really want to debate something, we just say, what did we say, Fred? Take note. take note. It just means, okay, we've noted, you know. So it's like take note, notice, mark out those persons. In other words, you want to know who these divisive people in the church are so that they can be avoided, so that they can be shunned, so that they can, you can otherwise give them a wide berth. Now, what does Paul have in mind here by people who cause divisions and offenses? It's hard to know for sure if he's singling out any one particular type of people, but the main culprit of these types of people that cause divisions in the church in the New Testament times uh, at least the first main culprit would probably have to be the Judaizers. Okay, I've probably spoken about them before. You've probably heard them before. I've been here. The Judaizers were a group of people, Jewish Christians, who taught that you had to be circumcised first in order to be saved. You first see this sort of this um, conflict arising in Acts chapter fifteen, and uh, in the men's Bible study. That's where we're going to be at next month. We got up to fifteen. But in Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, we learn that certain men came down from Judea. So this is, this is Luke talking about these things. The, Paul and his, his friends are up in Antioch, which is north in Syria. They're up in Antioch, and the church there in Antioch is growing and thriving. And Paul and Barnabas had just returned from their first missionary journey. And now we're seeing that people are coming from Jerusalem. Whenever it says come down from Jerusalem, it just means because Jerusalem's on a hill on a mountain, so they have to descend. <laughs> Anywhere, anytime they're leaving Jerusalem, they have to go down. So they came down from Jerusalem, they came to Antioch, and they taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now how many here would think that that is something essential to the gospel, that we have to be circumcised? Of course, for the women, I guess that would not be an issue. But is that something we believe the gospel teaches? No, absolutely not. This is contrary to the doctrine that they, have, that they have received and learned. And it's causing division in the church. Paul wrote the letter to the Galatian churches to combat the Judaizers and those who peddle a false gospel. In fact, in the very opening phrase, he says, if anyone preaches a gospel different than the one you've received from me, whether he be man or angel, that one should be a curse, anathema. Do not listen to someone who peddles a false gospel. In the book of Philippians, Paul calls the Judaizers, he calls them dogs, evildoers, and flesh mutilators because of their, their thing with circumcision. He says you mutilate the flesh. It's a play on the word in Greek for circumcision. So this would be one group of people that Paul might have in mind as those who cause division. Note those kind of people. Note them and avoid them. Another type of people who cause divisions are those that the Apostle John refers to in his epistles. So in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 1-3, through 3, he refers 
to people who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, John calls these people false prophets. Okay, this is, again, we're not talking about non-essentials. Is, is the fact that Jesus came in the flesh, is that an essential of the faith? Right. Jesus came in the flesh. That's what John belabors that point in his gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was a man. Jesus, Jesus wept. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. You know, all of these things. So the people who, conf- who teach that Jesus has not come in the flesh, he calls them the spirit of Antichrist. You have an anti-Christian spirit if you teach that Jesus did not come in the flesh. So anyone who denies the essential truths about the person and work of Christ is one who causes division. So you've got the Judaizers, you've got people who are denying the truth about Jesus Christ, his person and work. A third possible candidate for people who cause divisions in the church are either legalists or antinomians. Okay, Those are opposite ends of the same spectrum. They're flip sides of the same coin. Again, these are people who deny the gospel in some way or another. The legalists like to add rules, add man-made traditions to the, to the gospel. The antinomians want to say you don't have to do anything. The gospel is just free. You've got to get out a hell-free card. You can do whatever you want, and you can live any way you want. So people who add to the gospel or people who feel you don't need to be obedient to the commands of Christ, who then preach a sinful licentiousness. We need to avoid these people as well and have no dealings with them. In fact, as Paul will say to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11, through 11, you might, we can probably turn there, it might be helpful just to have that in front of you. 1 Corinthians 5, So since we're at the end of Romans, you just need to go to the right a few pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11 through I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reveler, sorry, reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So this idea of the sexually licentious, sexually immoral, other sinners, other people who are living in unrepentant sin, Paul says, when I said don't associate with those kinds of people, I didn't mean the people of the world. You don't expect the world, the unbelieving world, to behave according to the commands of Christ. That's not how they're wired. So he says, don't, you know, I told you not to associate with those people, not the people of the world, because then you would have to leave the world. You have to be, you know, we're surrounded by unbelievers who live lives like this. No, those are the people you need to go out and reach. 
He says, don't "Don't associate with those people who call themselves Christian, who call themselves brother, who then also act like this. That's contrary to the commands of Christ. That's contrary to the way we are to behave. If If someone calls himself a brother or a sister in Christ and then thinks that they can live any old way they want, you need to avoid those people. Okay, you can go back to Romans. So then he goes on in verse 18. For those who are such, these divisive people, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So divisive people in the church are not interested in serving the Lord. They're interested in serving themselves, their own belly, their own desires, their own appetites. They'll assure us they do serve the Lord. They'll say, oh, no, 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 I'm serving the Lord. I'm serving the Lord. But as Paul says, they serve their own belly, their own lusts, their own desires. So dollars to donuts, when you see a false teacher, you see these people on TV, these these crazy people on TV that are, you know, asking for money and supposedly performing miracles and all kinds of weird things, or, you know, who are teaching air or whatever, you know, you see these people, uh, dollars to donuts, that person is serving their own belly, right? In fact, most of these, you know, false prophets on TV, they have these, you know, these small or large empires. You know, you think of the false teachers, you, I'm not going to name names, but just, you, you know who I'm referring to, I'm sure you have a list of your own. You know, they've got these nice churches, these nice buildings, and they're wearing these nice suits, and their hair is perfect, and their teeth are bleached, and they have this million-dollar smile, and, you know, they drive, you know, it's like, you know, they're living in the lap of luxury. They do all this to serve their own bellies, and we see they do so by smooth words, flattering speech that deceive the hearts of the simple. And again here, by simple, what Paul probably has in view here are those who may be simple with regards to the faith, who are not well-educated in the faith, who do not have a good grounding. So maybe new or young believers or people who have not taken the time to, to really study deep the things of God. So then the call then to the Romans here is to avoid and shun these people. Now, perhaps Paul had heard some reports of such people in Rome. It would explain why he has written in the book, the letter of Romans, the way he has in some parts. Maybe he has heard some reports about, you know, really, if you read the book of Romans, you see that there might have been some tension between Jewish and, and Gentile Christians in the church, which is why he speaks the way he does in some places. So he's, you know, maybe he's heard some of this, which is why he's giving this command, but Regardless of why Paul wrote this command, he is one thing, he's confident in their obedience in verse 19. He says, For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. Now Paul wrote, he opened the book of Romans by saying, Your faith is known throughout all the world. So he says, The reputation of the Roman church is well known. I have heard of it. I've heard reports of your faith how your faith is spoken of throughout the world. And here your obedience is also known to all. It's a wondrous thing when the faith and obedience of a church or a group of believers is the first thing 
that people speak about them. When you know, he hears about the Romans, like, oh yeah, those people. I've heard about their faith, and I, I've heard about their obedience. That's good. What's bad is you say, you know, oh, the, the church in Rome. Oh, yeah, so and so goes there, and I know that there's a rift in the church, and and there's all kinds of division, and oh, I, don't, I wouldn't go there. No, that's bad. <laughs> but you want to hear? You want to? We want to be a church that's when people hear about us, when people hear about Emmanuel Reformed Church. I've heard about those people. They're faithful and they're obedient. That's what we want to hear, because that, that's attractive to people. The reputation of the Romans had preceded them, and that was a good thing. So because of this, Paul is glad on their behalf. And that word glad really, I don't think, captures the force behind that word there for glad, Cairo. It means to rejoice. Paul rejoiced when he learned about the Romans' faith and their obedience. He rejoiced in his own soul this is a good, strong church that has faithful, obedient people. We see this often as Paul starts a lot of his letters by commending the work that God is doing through the Holy Spirit in their church. And there's many examples, but one example is in the book of Ephesians. In the first chapter, verses 15 through 17, Paul is writing to them, Therefore I also... After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. So Paul just commends the Ephesian church because he has heard of their faith. He has heard of their love for the saints. Again, their reputation had preceded them. Paul started that church, so... He's happy that they are growing in the faith as well. We, you know, the church in Ephesus that we see in Revelation, their church is really strong in the faith, yet they kind of lost their first love by that time. But the point is, their faith, their love for the saints has been known to Paul, and he never stops giving praise to God for that. He rejoiced in their obedience. And then we get now to the rest of verse 19, Paul's exhortation here for the Romans to be wise and simple. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And like I said when we looked at this earlier, uh, I think this is the key point here in Paul's, uh, in this section here. And wisdom is a good thing, right? Who, who here thinks wisdom is a good thing? Right? Everything should go up. Wisdom is a good thing. Christians should always seek wisdom, and Paul calls us to be wise in what is good. And the word wise there is sophos in the Greek. It's used to translate in the Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament, the word hokum. Not, not like, you know, oh, that's a bunch of hokum. But hokum in, in Hebrew means wisdom. Wisdom. In this, and it's so we see in, in, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, you see the word sophos. And in Hebrew, wise meant more than just to have knowledge, okay, it meant to be shrewd. It meant to be learned. It, meant, it could also mean skillful or experienced. So you want to be someone who's wise, who really knows and is skillful and is learned and is shrewd in the things that are good. And that's what Paul is doing. He's drawing upon this Hebrew sense of the word wise. He wants the Romans and us to be skilled in what is good and good in a qualitative sense. That's what the word there means. And this contrasts very well with what Paul then later says. And simple, 
concerning evil. And that word simple means innocent or naive. So be skillful in the good things. Be naive. Don't be skillful in the bad things. Skillful in the good things, naive or innocent in the bad things. Now the question becomes, then how does one become wise in what is good and simple concerning evil? Well, that is the process of sanctification, okay, which Paul talked about earlier in the letter. We are sanctified by the truth, right? It's right up there behind the pulpit, right? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. We are sanctified as the Spirit works in us the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As the Spirit works in us the fruit of the Spirit, we are sanctified and we become wise in what is good. We are sanctified as we put off the old man with all of the sinful behaviors we once walked in when we were unbelievers and when we put on the new man, the new man who is being renewed by the Spirit of God as the Spirit works in us the fruit of the Spirit. So only by immersing ourselves in the Word of God while at the same time weaning ourselves off of the world can we ever hope to be wise in what is good and simple or naive concerning evil. And that's, you know, I mean, I wish I had a, you know, a more dramatic thing to say, but it's, you know, it always seems to come down to, it's like, you know, well, just, you know, kind of read and meditate on the Word of God more and, and, you know, avoid bad things. You know, it's like, yeah, I I have nothing new. (laughs) Sorry, I have nothing new to give you. I don't have a secret five-step plan that will, you know, instantly sanctify you. You know, I'm not selling you know, like, you know, the Oxner School of Fishing. I'm not, scale, I'm not selling the Goebelman School of Sanctification, five steps to sanctification. You do these five steps and you will... That's what a false teacher would do. Do these five things, do these 12 things, do these seven things, and you will, you will see your life improve and so on and so forth. And then you send your 99.99 to somebody and then you, you, know, you find out you're still stuck in the same sins that you were stuck in before. Only by immersing ourselves in the Word of God and at the same time weaning ourselves off the world. You've got to do both, right? It's put off the old man, put on the new man. You can't put the new man on top of the old man. You've got to take that old garment off. All right, so verse 20. Paul closes his little aside in verse 20 where he says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, of course, this verse has a benedictory flavor to it. We talked about it a little bit earlier, how Paul seems to close his letter and then start up again, and then close his letter and then start up again. Uh, But the first part of the verse here, right? And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. This is a promise. This is a promise that God will crush Satan. Now, we hardly need to be introduced to who Satan is, right? Satan, we, know, we've all, we all know who he is. He's, he's the chief adversary. That's what the name Satan means. It means adversary. He is the main adversary to God. He's the main adversary to his people, the church. In Revelation 12.10, which we will get to maybe in two lessons, 
So next week we'll be we'll finish off eleven, and then in two weeks from that maybe be to chapter twelve verse ten. Anyway, in chapter twelve verse ten, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, who stands night and day before God's throne and accuses his people to his face. More importantly, Satan was the whole reason mankind fell in the first place. His temptation of Adam and Eve caused them to fall in their probation with God. God set them up in the garden, gave them a command. If they had obeyed, they would have gone on to the blessed higher form of life that is promised to all of us, yet they failed. And they failed because Satan invaded the garden. Adam failed to kick Satan out of the garden. So Satan invades the garden, tempts him, and then they fail in their probation. Now, it's not to shift the blame, right? I'm not doing you know, the, the Flip Wilson school of theology here where you know, the devil made me do it. It's not my fault. That's what Adam and Eve said, right? Adam pointed to Eve. That's her, it's her fault. Eve pointed to the devil and said, it's the devil's fault, the one that you made. <laughs> you know, so, and ultimately, it's God's fault because he made it all. No, we're not shifting the blame, but we have to acknowledge Satan's role in the fall of mankind. Satan brought the temptation in. But it was in that moment of failure that God gives us a little ray of hope in Genesis 3.15, a very well-known verse in which as he's cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this promised seed of the woman is Jesus, of course, and he has and he will crush the head of the serpent. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought Satan was defeated on Calvary. I thought when Jesus was crucified, Satan was defeated. Well, that's true. Yeah, he was dealt the death blow uh, on the cross. Jesus dealt the death blow to Satan. He dealt the death blow to sin. He dealt the death blow to death itself. And Satan is a defeated enemy, but he still, as Peter says, goes about as a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Satan's at his most dangerous now because he is wounded, because he is dying, because he knows his time is short. Well, again, that's what we'll see that in Revelation 2. As Satan is cast down, then a woe is pronounced on the earth because Satan is now on earth. And he says, and he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. So the final and consummate victory will be won when Christ returns and he casts Satan and he casts the beast. And he cast the false prophet and all the unrepentant wicked into the lake of fire. So this promise here that God will crush Satan is meant to encourage us, though, in our daily struggle with sin, the flesh, and the devil. And then he goes on here in, the, in that benedictory part where he says the God of... Well, he calls him the God of peace. We saw it earlier in Romans 15, the God of peace, that word peace... Irene, if you know someone named Irene, that is taken from that. Uh, peace means more than just absence of conflict. Just because you're not fighting doesn't mean you have true peace. That's the point. Irene here is used again to translate a Hebrew word, a very Hebrew, famous Hebrew word. How many people have heard the word shalom, right? It's a greeting that, that Jews give to one another. Shalom, Shabbat, you know, that's when on Sabbath, right? Peace on the Sabbath. And Irene is used to translate shalom, and shalom has a wide range of meaning, not just peace, but it means completeness. It means wholeness. Everything is made right. It means you have safety, you have health, and you have peace. 
It's the idea you get in Proverbs 18.10 when you, you hear the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run into it and are safe. They have this feeling of shalom, this feeling of peace, safety, completeness. And it's a peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.1, we've seen this um, some months ago. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, that final clause in verse 20 is the second benediction in the, in the book of Romans. Uh, we looked at the other two, the first one in Romans 15.13, the third one at the end of the letter. Um, and it's, again, it's just like Paul wants to keep signing off, but then he thinks of more things he wants to say. But he says there, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So this is the end, almost. Almost. One more lesson. <laughs> One more lesson to go, and we complete our slightly over a year look at the book of Romans. I, I hope that this has been a blessing to you as it has been to me to study this and to prepare for this. Uh, because Romans is really, it's such a powerhouse of a book of the Bible, and its lessons continue to inspire instruct and comfort believers in all walks of life so lord willing next week on the 19th we will finish the book of romans by looking at the last seven verses there and then again lord willing in two weeks i think we are going to start we'll just go right to the next book to first corinthians